correctly with the correct amount. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. radiocom Welcome to Me and Steve Talk RPGs, a podcast where me and my friend Steve try and help you get the most out of your role-playing game experience. Hey folks, welcome back to Me and Steve. Uh, Going to have a little bit of a different episode today. My normal co-host Steve is not here today because he's off having fun at the beach. And uh, I will have a guest here in, in a couple of minutes, but uh, before I do that, I want to take a minute to tell you about another great podcast here on the D20 Radio Network, and that's Eberron Renewed. Eberron Renewed's an actual play podcast in the world of Eberron. However, they aren't actually playing D&D anymore at this point. They did in their first campaign, but they've since uh, converted the world to the Genesis RPG engine, and that's what they're using to play. So... um it's a really, really fun show. We actually had the GM, Eric, on, oh, geez, I want to say it was maybe like episode six, so it's been close to two years now we talked to him. But uh, in any case, it's a really good show. Go check that out. It's called Eberron Renewed. So, as I mentioned, uh, my normal co-host, Steve, is off at the beach this week. However, I am joined by another Steve this week, uh, that being Steve D of Tin Star Games. So, welcome to me and Steve, Steve. Hello. And <laughs> um, yes, I'm not surprised that there are lots of Steves on your podcast. Um, Steve was like one of the most popular names in the 70s, and I know lots and lots of Steves, um, especially in gaming. Yeah, well, ironically, you're the first Steve we've had as a guest. We've had someone whose last oh. name was Stevens. Right. But, uh, yeah, I am a child of the 70s. In any case, yeah, you're, you're Steve D. You run Tin Star Games and... Uh, Tell us yeah. a little bit about what all you've done or do in the gaming industry, I guess, is a good way to start. Yeah, so I've, I've been in the industry uh, for about almost 20 years. Um, I started working um, as, a, as like a journalist and a zine writer and uh, a blogger. Had my own uh, web zine back when those were a thing called Places to Go, People to Be. Uh, and then I um, got into freelancing and I worked on all sorts of games from uh, Vampire, The Requiem and Warhammer and Buffy and have been freelancing for years. And in the last five years or so, I've started up my own company. And um, yeah, I've, I've been publishing games of my own games for about 10 years and then turned it into 10 star games and got a proper website. And um, in 2019, we published our first big RPG, which was called Relics. And um, since then, we've had a couple more games come out. And we've got, yeah, lots of stuff all over our itch and our Patreon, all sorts of indie games um, in all sorts of types. Okay. I was going to ask, do you have like, you know, I know in you having been around the industry, you know, you've seen the transition from where in the 80s through the 90s, uh, the, the trend was very much, you know, very crunchy simulationist yeah. games where now the pendulum has swung very much more narrative. Do you have yeah. kind of a preferred zone in that or does it depend on what you're doing, what you're doing? Um, I think I've found that I'm, I'm definitely more of a lighter type person or I'm certainly a more narrative type person. I like, I'm not one of these people who wants the system to just fade away and only be called on now and then I want the system to drive things. 
but I want a narrative system generally that's that's really designed to emulate fiction. So I'm looking at things like Fate or uh, Cortex I really like. Uh, I don't mind a nice crunchy system, but I find that most of them aren't really that interesting. Like it's actually really hard to make a sort of tactical combat system that's flexible enough for an RPG that's actually gives you interesting combat. So I've found what what I've found recently is that there's things like Gloomhaven out there, which is a really interesting tactical combat experience with a sort of story behind it. And that gives me a much better table experience than a lot of these crunchy RPGs. Mm -hmm. Uh, I guess in some ways that's like 4E D&D. Um, as well like it was really an interesting combat simulator and um that's you know if i want that if i I played a bit of 5e and i just like the role playing isn't that interesting and the combat isn't that interesting you just and and yeah it's um it's uh i feel like it's almost the worst of both worlds some of those systems they try to be interesting little tactical simulators but they rarely are yeah well no and that's you know i've we've had a lot of conversations around our feelings toward 5e and i think what you said there kind of encapsulates a lot of it that yeah the combat's pretty good but it's also kind of fiddly and the role play can be pretty good but the system really doesn't support it Hmm. and so you're just kind of like well it's not a bad game but it's not good at anything (laughs) yeah it doesn't surprise me what you said about people switching to genesis i know so many people who are in love with genesis and I think part of that is, I mean, there is there is a fair bit of crunch in some of their sort of Star Wars systems, but it's, again, a somebody where they sat down and went, let's actually make every single role a narrative event because it's got all those extra dice things that can be yeah. like, and then this happened, and then this happened. It's, um, you know, people are, I, I think, I mean, everyone plays D&D, but there is a little bit of people just going, this isn't really scratching that itch. Um, <laughs> and mm-hmm. And that's... I think affects how I design as well. Trying to sort of convince people that there are better ways sort of to get to what you're really looking for and trying to sort of, yeah, explicitly talk about what you're looking for. Um, Because a lot of the time people just take D&D because it's there and they don't really stop and go, what are we actually doing? You know, what are we doing at the table? And in many cases, D&D is just there so that people have something to talk about. It's not really helping. Right. Right now, yeah, and that's actually, I mean, that was kind of one of our reasons for starting the podcast was that frustration with people always defaulting to D&D, and we're like, well, maybe we can do a podcast and help people find more other cool stuff, Yeah, you know? And and you have, like you mentioned, you know, Genesis is a favorite of ours, but, like, there are things, you know, there, there are other games that I want to play besides just Genesis. You know, one of my personal favorites is Delta Green and the kind of the Cthulhu mm-hmm. vein, right? Yeah, but it it does a very different thing than than what Genesis could, and and you know even having talked to uh, Jay Little who designed the Dice Engine, he said he doesn't doubt that you could play Cthulhu or that type of story with Genesis, but you already have Call of Cthulhu and it's so good at that. Why yeah. why bother to shoehorn it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean. There's obviously very, very good marketing reasons why everything is being 5e'd, you know, these days. But um, their system does really matter, and and a lot of great systems are out there, you know, really helping create different table experiences and curating those experiences instead of just, you know, hoping that the group and the and the game master will carry the rest. 
um, which is, I think, a lot of what happens. Um, I, I was actually on a podcast uh, a week or so ago talking about, um, I, was, I was likening it to sort of the way that people play poker. You know, they're not really there to play poker. They're there because they're there with their buddies and they want to shoot the shit and, and, and chat. And they just need something to sort of have a bit of push and, and flow and, and talk about. And, and it's just something that everyone knows. And uh, that goes back to what I was saying about, like, what are we actually doing? And if you're like, oh, look, I really want to help the improv that we get and the storytelling that we get, you might start looking around and going, well, what is what what kind of experiences does that look like? And, yeah, going, let's get a system that helps. Yeah. Well, it sounds like what you're saying is that you kind of gravitate towards both maybe in, in what you like to play and in your design work that you're drilling in with the system to accentuate a certain aspect that you want to focus on. Mm, yeah. I think a lot of times with an RPG, you're designing a, a pretty big experience because you've got a big house and you want people to find different things in it. But I think for me, I've always preferred a very specific game with a very specific goal uh, in terms of not, not just like the narrowness of the setting, but like this is the feeling that we want to evoke. You know, I, I come mm -hmm. to game design like an artist and part of it is like I want you to have a certain kind of experience communicating a certain kind of emotion. And so a lot of my games are quite small, quite narrow, very precise, um, even when they leave some elements open. So right now we've just published Partners, um, which is about police procedurals and mystery solving. And we talk a lot about that, that your setting can technically be anything you want in, in terms of like the, the sort of physical tropes. Like you could be solving crimes on the moon or in the far future, or one of you could be a time traveler, or one of you could be a demon from hell or whatever it is. But the format and the tropes of, of theme and structure are very, very narrow. You're going to be solving mysteries of the week and you're going to be working through very, very set tropes uh, of those sort of structured TV shows. And that, I think, um, really helps people know what to do when they're at the table. You know, that, that, that helps them go, oh, this is what we're talking about. This is the kind of story we're doing. And that's, I mean, genre settings can be really good for that. Um, I mean, licensed settings. Like, people know when they're jumping into Star Wars, this is what it's going to be like. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's another limitation of D&D, &D, though, actually, is that on the one hand, being vanilla helps people put anything they want on top of it. But it's hard sometimes to sit at the table and go, well, what kind of fantasy story are we telling? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just a paladin, but what does that mean? You know, right. whereas if it's in Star Wars, I know, okay, I know exactly what a Jedi is. I know how much that weight that has in the setting. And unless the GM's ready to sort of go, this is exactly what class X and race X means in my world, then you have nothing to hold on to. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of talk in, in, in tabletop design, uh, board games and card games about scaffolding, which is the structure that the players use to figure out how to play the game. And in many ways, Dungeons and Dragons sort of doesn't have a lot of that. It has rules versions of it like here are the things you can do but no setting or or fiction scaffolding yeah yeah well that you know and to circle back you know we mentioned genesis a little bit i find genesis interesting in that it's intentionally a generic system but what they've done i think is the system focuses on a method of storytelling in other words it's very much designed to do that kind of heroic cinematic action yeah yeah and so while it's not genre-specific or setting-specific, it's trope-specific. Yes, yes, absolutely. And you are going to get certain kinds of stories from the Genesis system um, that, mm -hmm. as you said earlier, you, you might, might not suit 
like a, a grounded um, Delta Green game. And and again, that sort of some of that's really interesting about ways that you can tweak that. And even within some systems, you can change some of the levers. But yeah, that's that to me like like. Well, you mentioned Cortex. Yeah, Cortex is a, is an example again that's fairly flexible, but also has yeah the dice are going to create certain kinds of of, of limits and, and actions. It's um and uh, it, comparing it to Fate, which I often do, is Fate is all about Fate point economy, and there are points that you can spend in in Cortex, but it's nowhere near as much as it is in Fate. And so mm-hmm. Fate often comes down to a very it's sort of pseudo antagonist thing where the where the GM and is is figuring out how many points they have to spend and you have how many points to have to spend and there's this tug of war kind of thing which is really good for you know a sense of fighting very powerful villains that are equal against you and cortex can do some of that but it's also really good because cortex uses dice instead of pools it's good for modeling um sort of more abstract just like what is the threat going on how tense is the situation and there's this beautiful mechanics in in the cortex prime where they talk about just having uh, escalation dice, basically, which is just like how how exciting is the situation at the moment, and therefore how many you know what sort of dice you're rolling, and you beat situations down by by lowering their dice, um, which means you can model. You know, one of the great settings that comes with the core Cortex Prime book is um about uh, it's sort of a little bit like Thunderbirds, but more realistic. So you're only dealing with mostly national uh, natural disasters and and um, accidents and things like that, and so. That cortex system works really well for okay. The 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 wildfire has four dice and four d8s or something, and the train crash has three d10s, and that that's you know just naturally suggests because once you sort of go okay, any bad guy is just a number of dice. You can go well, a number of dice. Then I don't have to stat them out like a person. I can go well. Then it doesn't have to be a person that they're fighting. It can be a situation, and it works really well with that. Um, and that's yeah, how system can suggest. A kind of uh, a kind of storytelling. Mm-hmm. So, so with partners, you said it's it's a detective police procedural game at its core, but not well. Looking at drive through, it looks like you have a variety of, if you will, setting supplements for it. Yep. Yeah. So, so the core of it is the kind of TV show that is that this like so. Bones is a good example. Lucifer is a good example. Castle is a good example. You've got two main characters. One of them's usually male. One of them's usually female. They have bickering and bantering, um, but there's a mystery of the week that they go through in certain stages, and that was sort of our core thing. To really, again, we wanted to be specific because that helps you stand out as well. So we were like, this is a game that's designed primarily for two players. You can play it with lots. You can play it with one, but it's we're pitching it as here is a two-player RPG, and this is a two-player, two-character kind of story. Mm-hmm. But we then sort of there are ways you can think outside the box because you can do for example you could do something like the x-files which is very much in that mold but now there's a conspiracy and there's the supernatural you can do supernatural which also has two main characters who bicker but it's monster of the week and so we have these what we call files where we we change up the the, the ingredients so that you can do slight tweaks or larger tweaks you know, there's one that's focused on what we call the um, the tea time files, which focuses on stories that are more sort of comfort mysteries. So there's a bit less violence, a bit less police stations, more old ladies and, and vicarages and Agatha Christie and Murder, She Wrote kind of style. And, and yeah, so we also talk in the core book about just ways that you can you can 
make the sitting you can slide the sliders a, a fair bit just with the core system but then if you're like okay well we we there are some results on these tables that aren't going to fit let's just pick up a, a file um that's cthulhu or that's sherlock holmes or that's uh tea time mysteries or something mm-hmm. well it sounds sounds really interesting i mean like i'm seeing you've got you know you mentioned sherlock tea time uh looks like you've got a like a cyber one yep a youth one you know so okay we've we've talked about mechanics and stuff what what sort of mechanical structure do you have behind partners then just you know if that's where we go next yeah um partners i almost didn't publish it because partners is 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 a very unusual style of game from most kind of role-playing games although there are games doing this um in the background uh the idea basically i don't know if you know for the queen heard of it it's a card game which again is trying to sort of get people to just sort of jump into a gmless kind of situation fiasco is a bit close like this as well um in that these are all games where you like so many rpgs are sort of in this what we call an avatar mode where it's like i'm playing my character and i'm making decisions as if i'm luke skywalker or whatever i'm thinking what would luke skywalker do in this situation and i'm kind of trying to solve his life as if i was him as opposed to coming from a sort of authorial point of view where i'm i'm making choices like a writer mm-hmm. and once you sort of come into a writer an author author stance sometimes what you get is these games like fiasco where the dice or the cards just go your character has stormed off your character is angry at character why your character has a terrible secret and you don't get to choose that the cards just throw it at you and you then have to react and and you get a sense of oh that's what my character's doing okay what's interesting about that how would i interpret that and they're, they're kind of called prompt games by mm-hmm. some people and so without being directly respond, um, uh, responding to those, uh, Partners is basically designed on every scene is generated by random tables and card pulls and what we, we actually use a random word generator as well. Okay. So you're not going to be like, oh, this guy was stabbed in the back. We should go and look at you know who owns a knife. Instead, you're going to generate the next scene by drawing cards to see which um, suspects it involves what kind of evidence is being provided and and what kind of scene it's going to be. And then you go, oh, okay, so next scene is about this. And that tells you what the next piece of evidence is that's going to be in the story. But you get to play out the scene and you have to figure out how your characters negotiate that scene, how they get past the um, barriers that are sort of placed in front of you. Mm-hmm. And you take turns basically being the helper or the hinderer. So one of you know the straight shooters like we need to solve this mystery and then the wild card will be going oh I'm distracted I want to you know because I'm a I'm a comedy character so I'm just talking about my holiday to the beach and then the, the straight shooter will go oh but of course there was sand on the victim or something and then you switch over and the the uh, straight shooter as we call them gets stuck and the wild card will actually be going no here's how we push through and get this guy to talk and so you know what your structure is and you know what the clues are but you have to sort of figure out, okay, what is this scene actually about? How do we find this? How do we make sense of these elements? Um, which is a lot like the the fun of character generation if you do it randomly. Like I think that's something that I always loved in RPGs. I love sitting down with a blank piece of paper. And it's not just – sometimes it's also randomly generating a world or a plot. You roll some dice, you get some prompts, and you go, oh, how does that all fit together? And you end up with something completely new that was just thrown from sparking ideas – on your head and maybe someone else at the table and you get this completely new idea that you didn't have before. And so we've taken that concept of discovery 
and inspiration from random prompts and turned it into the whole game. So every scene is like, oh, where are we now? Okay, what are we doing here? Let's find out. Almost reminds me of um, the improv comedy show that, um, well, there was a British version and a US version. Whose line is it anyway? Yeah, I mean, and that comes back to what I was talking about earlier about like looking at what we actually do at the table. And RPGs sort of began very much like Gygax's vision was let's take war games and boil them down to a couple of people. And it's a tactical war game where you're fighting eventually against the GM's ability to kill you. And that's one kind of experience. But along the way, everyone went, well, this is actually a lot like improv theater. And all these improv elements have slipped in. And they're often at the background of, of RPGs, you know, that these things that we give you, you know, even backgrounds in 5e, they're things that are to inspire you to make scenes. And so what I'm trying to do, just like we were saying, like, Figure out if you want a good tactical experience, maybe play Gloomhaven instead of, or D&D. If you want a, something that's throwing out narrative cues, let's actually look at, at improv and let's look at things that really do that directly and go, here are your, here are your ideas that the system is throwing at you, mm-hmm. improv. And taking away, that's really interesting to me, take away that kind of that last bit of simulationism. You don't have stats because that's not really important. You have things that are dramatic cues and these are the way these cues trigger to you and, and then you're just always focusing on the storytelling, you know, and it gets you more into that thinking of, you know, what is the most interesting dramatic thing that we can do with this scene? Um, And we're working, a lot of my games are sort of more and more into that area of like, how can we just give you a prompt? Because that's, that's, I think what, what we're really, sometimes what people are really wanting. I mean, and and in a sense, Genesis has got, like, it's got a lot of the simulation elements, but it's still got that, the, the fact, the way the dice throw out, you know, this is the complication and this is the weird thing and this is the the force element or the magical element. That's, again, a list of prompts. Um, right. So I just try to boil that right down and go, look, if this is if prompts are what we want, then effectively 90% of partners is just lots of random tables that you draw on with playing cards. Mm-hmm. And the, the trick is getting the tables to fit really well to the genre so that you know, you know, when you draw a card, oh, it's fingerprints and it's the the brother of the victim and you know you you know exactly what kind of scene you're doing without having to think too hard but it can still be creative and, and inspiring yeah now this reminds me a little bit and, and it's a game that i've heard a bunch about i've heard it played a little bit reminds me a little bit of um anyone can wear the mask from uh, jeff stormer oh i've heard of it i heard of it but i, I don't think i've i've read much about it yeah i i think that's more intended as a solo game but i've heard it done as a duet like a, mm-hmm. a collaborative, you know, thing. But again, it's very much, it's using card draws as prompts, you know, very much a, a heavy on the improv, you know, yeah. not statistical. And I, I just think it's fascinating, you know, all the directions, you know, just even in the conversation we've had, you know, about the directions that game design is going. And I really like where, you know, like your stuff and, and a lot of the very small press indie stuff is really exploring these, what do you want to say? I, I, you could call it non-traditional if you're going to consider, you know, the D&D, if you like, you would call it the avatar model as mm. as traditional. But, you know, like the the hobby is branching so much and there's so much, you know, just kind of being played with in terms of, you know, are you focusing on the story you know, or or like, um, you know, some designers, it's very much about the setting and the system is just there 
so there's a little bit of framework for you to tell stories in the setting. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, a lot of things are, I think in many ways, role-playing games are a very young genre and it has rises and falls of indie scenes. And who knows how much of this is going to, I guess, flow upstream to the mainstream. But I think we're in, a, in an era at the moment where people are going, well, what actually is this hobby and what, why do we come to it and how can we play around with that? And yeah, I'm looking at a little bit at um, anyone can wear the mask, and, and and I think a lot of people, in slightly different ways, are pulling on this thread to go, what are we actually doing, and how do we really find what we want, as opposed to just taking with what what's out there, as you say, which are just either big big books of settings or you know vague tabletops uh, skirmish simulators. What can we actually do with these rules when we actually ask the question? Yeah, you know, what are the rules supposed to do? How are they supposed to guide us to this experience? And I've got some other games that I'm working on that, again, coming down to try to and, – and trying to also get that to into a, a larger market. So we're working on a game which we – it's still a long way away, but it's, um, it's designed to emulate zombie fiction, uh, zombie films and stuff, and only uses a deck of specific cards. But the idea is we want it to sort of really feel like a card game almost so that someone – who's never played an RPG and doesn't really have a lot of improv experience can just pick it up and go, Oh yeah, this is it. like, I don't know if you've seen, there's a thing called Rory story cubes, which is a big seller from Asmodee, which is just, it's mostly designed for kids and teachers. You, you roll dice and it's, it's a prompt game. You, you get these sort of random symbols and it's like, okay, kids, what story would we tell about that? And it's the same sort of idea, but for a bit more of an adult sort of thing, like, Oh, you know, so you draw a card like, Oh, and it tells you something about, what scene you're in with it with the zombies and everyone can sort of just have a bit of fun and, and say a thing. But the idea is to try and as we expand what a definition of an RPG is, try to get to people who have preconceptions um, and just go, you know, this isn't like, it isn't all like Dungeons and Dragons. Well, right. Exactly. I think, I think if you, t- cause if you come to someone and go, this is an interesting thing to do an activity to do, but here are the giant three hardcore books of rules and it's a fantasy setting that's sort of like Lord of the Rings, but you, you, it doesn't actually work like Lord of the Rings. That's just a huge barrier. And also you have to play it for four hours at least for several weeks of your life. You know, nobody wants to step into that. Yeah, it, it can be daunting for sure. I've I've described the the great greater hobby of, of role-playing games as cops and robbers for adults. Yeah, yeah. And... The thing about cops and robbers is that when you're a kid, you know exactly how that works, right? Because you've seen the shows, cops chase the robbers and the cops eventually catch the robbers and put them in prison or something. And and that's all the rules you need to know when you're a kid, you know, then eventually you're like, but I shot you. But so you just, but, but instead of going, right, here's a massive, complicated, crunchy system to solve who shot who, have a simple rule, you know, have a, Mm -hmm. like, if it's your turn to speak, you get to make some calls, you know, and then the next player gets a card or a dice or whatever, and then you move it on. And that's, you know, that's, that's, I think, I think if we can get people to do those kind of things, we can sort of unlock the idea of, of getting D&D sort of almost to being a parlor game. It's something you can just sit around or a party game, you know, right? You're sitting at the pub and just go, let's have a round of this. You know, that that's, I think, is, is something like a holy grail because I think obviously there's a lot of shyness and, and reluctance to tell a story, but, I think 
you don't have to be an improv expert to sort of go, oh, and then this happened and then that happened. And, and you know, we, we understand how to, to riff off each other's jokes. And, and anyone who's got a little bit of creativity and a little bit of um, comedy in them can sort of just go, oh, that makes me think of this and that makes me think of that. And I think a lot more people could be could be experiencing some of this fun. And, and the success of Fiasco, again, is a fairly widely successful game. Um, sort of points to that as well, where people like, once you take off, like Fiasco Talk takes off, it's very simple. It's one shot, which takes off some of the pressure. And there's that emphasis on everything's going to go crazy and stupid, which again, takes away the pressure. And that's why we've chosen zombies for this next game that we want to do, because everyone knows most characters die. So you're okay with like, oh, I guess, you know, I drew this card, which means I die, which is cool because, you know, now I can describe how the zombie bites my head off. Um, (laughs) That just takes some of that pressure off. Um, and then you get to be a zombie for the rest of the game. So you get to go around and eat people. And, oh, um, cool. Yeah, and it's it's um, Fiasco has a lot of these elements that just go, it's okay to just make mistakes, to, to get over your shyness. And um, yeah, I think, I, think, I think it's a really interesting area to explore. And I think, again, we're probably seeing some versions of it, I think, popping up. Like, as I said, we have these hybrids like Descent and... and um, and and Gloomhaven, I think probably like there's these games that they do for kids where like the dad is sort of you know the mom is half GMing, like it's a little book and you go okay put your character down and and you know this um it's sort of D and D for the kids but there's a, a bit of an improv and I think we might see the next step is and then get your kids to fill in this blank or fill in that blank and we might see some really interesting hybrids in that sense of that it's going to look like you're playing a board game with your kids but you're actually getting them to tell a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, I, that that could be interesting. I mean, I think it's going in so many directions at this point. You know, it's it's almost like we're technology. You know, it expands exponentially because this person goes this direction off this thing, and this person goes the other direction off that thing, and and it keeps branching like that. And so it just you know it's this giant you know almost like like a, a shattering pane the the lines in a, at a pane of glass when it cracks. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But yeah, I mean. And I- you were talking about like the, the disposable, not really disposable, but, but the idea of kind of not being as precious with your characters. And I think that's a trend we're seeing right now too, especially in like the OSR scene with, yep. with like Morkborg. And um, I just got the PDF copies for uh cyborg, their cyberpunk hack. Mm-hmm. And it, it is, it's that just go hard. And if you die, just try and go out in a big blaze of glory. Yeah. And and um, weirdly, you know, things like D and D. I mean, these days, uh, because of that big buy-in to get into a character, you have to come up with an idea, you have to understand the rules, you have to pick a class, you have to make hopefully good tactical choices. You you actually become way more attached to this thing because of the effort. And you're like, well, I don't want to take risks with this character because it took me so much effort to build it. Um, and that's like in computer games, computer RPGs. You know, you're like. Well, I'm I'm definitely reloading this save because I built I spent 400 hours on this character, and that there's nothing you know you can tell some great stories, but it it does really change the kind of storytelling you you're doing, um, and that comes back to what we're saying about how much system does matter. And if you ask somebody to spend two or three hours building a character, they are not going to risk it, and they are not going to put it into dangerous situations. And then you end up with GMs frustrated, like oh these guys you know. They didn't go into the dungeon to fight the dragon. They they 
hired an army to go in and kill the dragon for them. It's like, well, yeah, because they don't want to risk their characters. You know, you, you, that situation was created by the rules. It didn't come out of nowhere. Right. And, and yeah. Well, it sounds like partners where what you focused on with partners is it's yes, you've got characters, but you're playing the story, not the characters. Yeah, exactly. You are in a sense, more like the TV writers and, and, and creators of the, of the show. And we talk about how to make a show Bible as well. So you go through and go, okay, so what is our show about? When, when is it showing? Like, is it a late night show or, you know, is it for kids? Is it, is it PG? Is it M? And that again, so you have that sense of where we're coming at this as creators, which means we can go, look, this is going to really hurt my character but I want that to happen because it's a good story um, and they need this for their personal growth. And that means you are more likely to put them in danger and, and, and put the squeeze on them. And um, yeah, the, the game that I thought of, which we'll talk about later is um, for the, the game of the week is, is something that really inspired me in that area of just being able to step back and go, I, I want this to happen to my character, even though it hurts them personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's, that's a really sort of, that's an interesting space to explore um, in general. And, and yeah, you know, in relics, which is a very more, much more traditional RPG. Um, that was our big angels game. We talk a lot about that in the powers section about how so much of RPG design is about characters trying to be safe. Uh, players trying to be safe. Basically when you buy a power, part of what you're saying is not really, I want this to happen in, in, in the story. You're, you're kind of saying, I don't want the GM to screw me over. You know, that's what dark vision is sort of about. It's kind of like a defense. Like eventually the GM's going to su- try to hit me with something in the darkness. I have dark vision. He can't hit me. And so it becomes this game of I'm, I'm afraid and I have to protect myself. And a lot of the, the way that people buy powers is a sense of, right, these, these, what I'm, even if you can't screw me, and they might mean the system or the monsters, but it's you realize that. Make make me scared and make my character be threatened. You you're base you're working against your own aware that they want to win and they want to be safe, but they also have a, at the back of their mind going, well, that's not really that good a story. So there's often this the, the classical model of, of role playing games is you know uh, uh, if you love it, do it. But I think a lot of the times people are dissatisfied. It's because these ideas work against each other. When you're playing a sort of simulation thing with a character that you're heavily invested in you naturally have a protective attitude and stories don't work if everyone is playing it safe and nobody suffers and nobody faces danger. And essentially a lot of all these different mechanics in different ways are about trying to get around that and, and break down that idea of, oh, and get people to go, no, no, I should be in danger. I should take risks. Unless of course you want to just play it as a pure simulation. And that, that, that as I say, that's your jam. You know, nobody's going to take that away from you. There's always going to be games like that. Yeah. Well, what I think too, like it, to me, it seems like if you play a few sessions of, of partners or, or a game like that, and then you, you get a taste of how fun it is to really play the story and not be so precious with your specific character, you can then take that experience back to playing a more traditional RPG, yeah. you know, whatever one Absolutely. it is you want. Yeah, and 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 really enrich your experience because you've learned these tools. Yes, um, I'm 
going to be on a podcast in a week or two about that the, it's about how to be a better GM. But as I said, look, I'll probably talk a lot about design because these two things, you know, run into each other. The way that I design is a way to figure out, you know, what how I like to play and how I like to GM. So yes, a lot of these things, you know, when you have the right attitude, you can take it back to the table and go, look, this is this is how I'm going to play a bit more now, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take chances and I'm gonna put my character in danger and I'm gonna drive dramatic situations by, you know, doing things that might not be in my character's best interest and things like that. And yeah, I think I think that's that's the the good thing about these about RPGs is that in some ways we're very, we're we're really doing very similar things in different ways. So we can you know go look if you like the way that Genesis throws up all these weird results. Here's a way you might be able to do it in your system of choice. You know, like you know having wacky dice or something like in 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 whatever system is the one that you, that you prefer. Um, and a lot of a lot of products out there, they're not just uh, you know that's like here's how to do X and Y and Z in your in your D and D game. They exist because people are like, well, I saw how it happened in in this other game. I want to I want it to happen in my D and D game, and I know that people aren't going to switch, you know, because people are you know concerned, and I know that they're not going to switch systems. So I'm going to try my best to just throw these ideas at them, and that's sort of how D and D's evolved as well. It's slow and it's taking it's always tends to be behind the curve five or ten years, but most of, of RPG design is someone going, I saw this in another game or if someone else has did this as a GM, I'm gonna write it down and put it in a book so other people can see it if they haven't thought of it. And you know, make it explicit instead of just um, an oral tradition, which is unfortunately how how a lot of a lot of RPGs are really very oral in that sense, in that that you've always played it like this because your friend learned it from a GM who learned it from a GM and and then you'd be like you're playing someone else's game and go why don't you guys like describing your combat and you're like well, we don't do that it's not in the rules and and you just learnt how you know your your oral tradition of the game mm-hmm. and that's why I I think we do need to sort of why it's really important to play other systems because that's where this stuff gets written down and and the ter- one thing that I'm always railing about in the industry is is in part because of D and D's dominance, but also just because of the nature of cycles, is that the RPG industry doesn't really learn. There are people out there going, you know what? I've just had this brilliant idea um, after playing D and D for ten years that we should do, you know, we should have life paths or something. And you go, yeah, that was invented in like 1981, but you don't know about it because it's just not sort of going into the public consciousness. Um, right, yeah. And we, have to, we have to keep relearning these lessons, um, which is sort of frustrating. And we keep redesigning the wheel. So hopefully with this sort of more of a, if there if there is more of a people looking at different things out there, we'll get a bit more of that kind of, um, you know, not having to keep going back and reinventing the wheel every single time. Well- this is a, an interesting thought that I've, I've, I think I've had a conversation or two around this recently with, I don't remember who now, but the, the kind of D and D isolationism that mm. I, I know we see it quite a bit here in the U S I don't know if it's that as, as much the case, you know, down in Australia, but that seems to be actually very player centric where like, you know, doing the podcast, I get a chance to talk to a lot of different game designers, a lot of people who work on, you know, all kinds of stuff. And it seems like 
within the design community, even amongst people who are doing a lot of like third party D and D supplements and stuff, the, the amount of people who play other games, who read a lot of other games, who collect other games is, you know, astronomical. I mean, yeah, yeah. we talked with Jay little and I forget he, he said, you know, his, his games collection between board games and, and RPG books is in the many thousands, mm-hmm. you know, and now he's, you know, obviously not a, a D and D designer He's primarily worked with like FFG and Modifius and, you know, whoever else, but yeah. still, you know, it's, it's like, he's, you know, like he said, he'll, he'll buy these little indie things. He said, because that's so often you find that, that one little nugget of genius in this game and not that the rest of it's bad, but this one thing is just amazing. And so then mm. you take that and you build off of it and you add in yep. these other three, you know, great things you found somewhere else. And, and like, that's what you're, you're talking about basically. Mm-hmm. And that, that's why I said right at the start that I, I come to this like an artist and, and that's what art is all, all about. When there's an interesting scene and people are going, Oh, I hadn't thought of it quite like that. And that's an idea that I can use and we're inspiring each other. And yeah, I mean, definitely, I think, like there might be some people out there who only ever play D and D and make D and D games, but generally the successful people in the freelancing and the design, even if they do work on D and D, they play and they study and they they look at lots of games because they're interested in systems and they're interested in how these things work. So yeah, in design, there isn't that kind of isolationism. Um, and I do one thing on on that sort of related to that is I often see people who are other indie designers going, oh, so-and-so works for D&D, so they can't be interesting. It's like, no, that person who is doing like 100 D&D supplements probably also you know, has their own indie game and has worked on other games and stuff because you don't get to that point you know, where you're making your own stuff without being interested in other stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And there's one thing to sort of go, D&D is a little bit of a creative cul-de-sac for players, but we don't judge other people in the industry. We don't go like oh, you're working for the big guys, so you've sold out. Like, that's just ridiculous. That's um, It's a really toxic attitude um, that I see sometimes with these younger designers going, if you're not, you know, making weird indie stuff on itch, then you're, you've sold out. Like, it doesn't really work. Well, but I mean, that attitude is is in everything right how often do you hear that you know in music where you talk about all oh, this band sucks now they sold out you know yeah yeah and and look do i think that you know for my listening tastes i don't i like some of metallica's black album and everything after that cannot exist for my concerns that doesn't mean they sold out hey look yeah you know they're people too they grow up they change their attitudes you know their life changes so their music's going to change Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, and um, I completely derailed us. <laughs> no, no, no. You're, you're right. You're right. Um, it's early in the morning here, so um, we're talking about some heavy stuff. And yeah, no, you're, you're right. Um, it's it's really. I, I mean, I guess these these designers are often young, but yes, it's easy to sort of go, "Oh, that's not for me," or, or "That's not what I'm into." Therefore it's crap or it's, it's not real music or it's not real design or something. And there's, um, you know, a growing sort of, yeah, you, you can't, but if you're in an industry, you, you don't take that attitude to your fellow creators mm-hmm. because we're all doing different, you know, if someone's in there, as, as we said, they, they have almost certainly um, read lots of things, collected lots of things, written other things, 
And this is the pathway that they're using to, to make money and to get published and the thing that interests them right now. And it's sometimes we're almost anti-success. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you've got a big audience, so you must not be cool anymore. Um, although sometimes these indie people have way bigger audiences because of they've just sort of lucked out in an indie circle or something. And mm-hmm. the, the indie definition in general is very, very poorly designed in this industry. We sort of we throw it around like a weapon, but there really isn't all, almost unless you're actually you know unless it's Curse of Strahd and the big D and D projects, you're, it's all indie by terms of size and money. Yeah, um, it's just something that I've noticed on on Twitter, and, and I think people are starting to realize that Twitter is actually not a very good place for for for, for game designs, and um, maybe it's um, hopefully you know, Discord is a lot better or something. And that's it. it comes back to what we were talking about. This thing is that these the indie things go they go in cycles, and sometimes it'll get kind of toxic, and then it'll bubble out again and be different. And uh, yeah, we we do see we do see a lot of it is a very it is a very friendly industry in other ways and a very welcoming industry like the game industry in general. Well, yeah, I was gonna, I know my experience has been you know pretty much everyone that that I've gotten to talk to within the industry has been you know really nice people even people who you'd think are you know well, like these are big you know unapproachable people and and you start talking games and it's like you're just you just finished rolling dice for three hours and now you're just you know shooting the breeze. Yep. Yep. Yeah, you know, I, I, when I, you know, again, 20, 25 years ago, when I was getting to the hobby, I found everyone was really, really welcoming and and keen to talk, um, and that's helped me now because now, you know, some of those people have become my colleagues, and they're like, oh yeah, I remember, you know, you didn't show up at, at my booth and tell me that my game sucked <laughs> or whatever it is, or bash me online or something, you know, you were respectful and asked me questions, and but yeah, we 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 are all as as in terms of like hobbies that can turn into uh, a profession there's there's very few as welcoming and as easy to get into as, as rpg design mm-hmm. and again that comes back to also like we talked before about how you, how you play is how you design if you're a player you're already sort of designing a little bit because you build your character and you create scenes if you're a gm you're doing it even more so as soon as you start into this hobby you're sort of trickling towards design and um yeah, so so we're all a little bit artists and designers, and then we, we just do it more and more and more. Yeah, well, and it's like, you know, you, you've said a couple of times that you your kind of design philosophy is in many ways that you're an artist first, and I think that that's, that's, you know, a really interesting take on it, but I've said for years that to me, I think that art, where most people think of art as the piece that you get when you're done, to me, art is the creative process that gets to that piece. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and and so it's like you said, you know, you could go, your game sucks. Well, no, you just don't like it. That doesn't mean that the creative process behind it was any less valid, any less special, any less whatever than you know the process that behind you know Da Vinci painting the Mona Lisa or whatever else. Yeah, yeah, and and that's a good, a good, a, a really good distinction because I um, a lot of people want to have created a piece of art but don't necessarily want to be an artist and you have to love the process you have to really be interested in the process because that's where it all is you know where you're just like this is me coming back to the blank page and and making sure it works and testing it and you know and and finding what's interesting and finding what's key that's 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 the the work and that's what's being an artist is about you know you make a book and you'll be like yeah that's nice and then for you you've got to go back to the you know, 
back to the well and start writing again. Um, it doesn't sort of end with a product. Um, whereas for the consumer, that's sort of like, oh, here's this new thing. And uh, it's a very, yeah, it's a different relationship. And you're, you're, it's if you want to be a creator, don't think about, would it be nice to have a book with my name on it? Think about, is it nice to sit down all day and work on work on, on making a game better and better and better? Is that something you want to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we've ranged all over the place here uh, from, you know, theory and, and all kinds of stuff. Anything more you want to touch on before we start moving on to a couple other small things or? Uh... I think um, I probably, as I said, I think I'm, I'm exhausted my brain a little bit here in the <laughs> early morning. Yeah, I was going to say it is, it is morning time for you. And I, I thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Um, so we've talked about some of your stuff and, and, and all that. Where can people go to find your stuff or, you know, do you have website, social media, Patreon, anything you like to invite people to check out we are basically tin star games everywhere so that's tin like the metal tin star like the thing the sheriffs wear right in the old west so we are tinstargames.com tinstargames.itch.io tinstargames on facebook tinstargames on instagram on twitter because of a, a thing we are tinstargames with a number one at the end and all of those places you can find out more about our games and uh, i'm pretty active on t- facebook and twitter so I'll answer all your questions. And if, you know, review copies and things like that, we're happy to uh, to put out there. And, um, yeah, if, you know, if you've got a podcast, you want to do some running of our games, we'll also provide free copies for that and everything. So, yeah, um, and we've also got free games on our each site as well, so you can check out oh. some of our smaller games. And if you join the Patreon, you get almost everything we put out for free. Well, it's not all up there yet, but it's coming bit by bit. So um, check that out, yeah. Oh, very, very cool. All right, then. Well, I guess then it's time uh, for us to do our, our little kind of end of the show segment we call Game of the Week. Game of the Week. Game of the Week. All right. Would you like me to go first or would you like to go first? I know you said you had something picked out. I've got something sort of picked out as well. So, um... uh, yeah, so uh, I'll, I'll go first. Uh, the game I was thinking of was Smallville. It was one of the early games of Cortex. Well, actually, it was somewhere along the line of the Cortex system history. And I never watched the TV show of Smallville. I stumbled onto this purely by accident. And it was at a time when I was looking for systems that were very, very narrative and different. And it's one of the things that sort of went on to inspire a lot of my, the things we've been talking about here, about thinking of a sort of an author. And it has this really interesting system where the whole system is based around having conflicts that you would have in a TV show that are high drama kind of things where nothing ever really gets resolved in a soap opera kind of style. So it's a superhero game on the surface, but it's actually like they really originally they started with a very sort of traditional superhero system. But in the game, the stats are your values and your relationships with people and you roll those uh, in arguments with people and it also has this thing where you don't know how this how those scenes are going to end um, when you're going into them so you're not sure if you're going to get what you want or how emotional you're going to get or how much you're going to raise the stakes because the dice interplay tell you those things okay and that really just inspired the hell out of me it's also got a really unique character generation system um where you build this whole tv show and i just we used to run that um all the time and just because we wanted to um we wanted to try just make different shows and just see what we came up with and that's that's just been a great inspiration for me and yeah it's it's weird because 
it, it's probably one that gets overlooked because people are like, well, I don't watch the show. But um, it is it is a really, really incredibly well-written game that does things almost no other game does and was a huge inspiration on me. And you can see a lot of it in the Cortex systems that are out there now, but I do also recommend like just a very, very well-written book. Yeah, I think, is that out of print now? I mean, not that... I think it is, yeah. Yeah, I mean... uh, you said all the games. <laughs> I think, oh, well, no, no, no. That's that's perfectly fine. I yeah. mean, the first time we had Ian Houlihan on, he went to James Bond 007, yeah, which I think yeah. has been out of print for 30 years or something. <laughs> quite a while, yeah. Maybe early 90s, yeah. And again, that was one of the very first games that was like, you're not, you're telling a story as much as you're, you know, simulating, you know, warfare. And they had amazing things to help you. Like, they, it, it was one of the first games that came with, like, lots and lots of art to go, this is what Monaco looks like. This is what Paris looks like. So you knew what it was like to... Because that's how Bond movies work. Like, beautiful locations, beautiful shots of these beautiful places. And they went, yeah, so we better put that in our games. Yeah. Now, I've actually... I got to have a conversation with the lead designer for that game. Oh, not okay. for the podcast, but... uh turns out he actually lives geographically kind of close to me and actually we ended up in a local role-playing group on facebook together nice but nice. uh yeah he he said you know we we had a conversation he's a really interesting guy we may have him on at some point but he said that's actually kind of been one of the things that he's made a career of is people will bring him on to make a game feel right mm, yeah yeah you know and he said in his case it's all because he has a background in drama school and he said, yep. so it's all really, for him anyway, it's it's pretty much basic drama stuff. But to apply it to game design and going back to, you know, the point you made before about how so much of it is kind of oral tradition and we don't actually learn the things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me. He has a dramatic background um, because that was, yeah, it was one of the first people to actually get this idea and hopefully yeah and as you say we are still trying to learn it 30 years later and people are, are, are sort of slow to learn this lesson but we end up getting beautiful games out of it and and um i think that's something that i i think i'm very strong at and and probably learned from things like james bond is to is is that feel is really important i think we, I think we touched on that right at the start that my goal as a game designer is to get you to feel certain emotions and it better feel like it's a James Bond film or, or a murder mystery or whatever it is. Um, and that involves artistic skills, you know, and, and literature skills in terms of how the words and the images make you feel and how the mechanics make you feel. Okay. Yeah. No, that, that's, that sounds cool. I may have to see if I can and find something, prowl some local shops and see if I can find an old secondhand copy. Mm. Cortex prime. I'm, I'm very curious about, but, I'm a little intimidated by the amount of front end setup to it, which is weird because I'm not necessarily a crunch averse type of guy, but I think, I think a lot of people might be waiting for like Cortex Prime doesn't have a really baked in setting. There's sort of options at the back and there's going to be books coming out, which is like, here's how to run setting X front and center using Cortex. And we, it is a very, very much like the, that Cortex Prime rulebook is just a list of switches it's like, here is switch one. You can be in positions A, B, or C. Here's switch two. And it's like, okay, but which ones do I pick? And they've just put out the Tales of Zadia game, which is for the Dragon Prince setting. The He-Man game is, I think, six months away. Uh, and then there's a bunch of other ones, which is, as I say, going to be sort of 
front loaded with this with the setting and, and making those choices for you and that might be a lot easier for people to get into yeah i i think that would help me yeah and so smallville like if you can find it or the um the, the marvel version they did like there's a new marvel one about to come out from matt forbeck but i really love their their marvel rpg which again just was very very narrative based had a things in it that i'd never seen before and and really like one of the stats in that is how well you work with a team or with a, with a single partner or whether you're a loner. Like that's one of the core stats in their Marvel game. And I think that's just a really brilliant thing to observe that so much of Marvel is like, you know, person X likes to work alone, but now they're with a person, you know, in a crossover. And now that that's going to make them weaker because they don't like working with Spider-Man and that kind of like genre awareness as, and putting it right front and center. Um, just something that Cortex does well. Yeah, so if you can find their Marvel game, um, I recommend it as well. Okay, yeah, I'll have to I have to make a trip to uh, one of my local shops who has a nice big table full of older, small stuff. Nice. That's something we have a lot of trouble tracking down in, in, in Australia. Oh, I know. I've, it's, I've had, you know, well, just you know, different people I know from, you know, be it Australia, New Zealand, whatever. So, you know, what you get shipped over there is fairly limited to get anything shipped just is ridiculously expensive in most cases. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and conversely, probably for you as a designer, it's, it's awkward getting stuff out. Yes. Yes. We have a lot of issues with getting to the rest of the world. Yeah. So that's, and that's definitely a, a thing that has long influenced our industry is that we are, we are a long way away from everything else. And, um, and that, that makes everything harder. Yeah. All right. Well, let me get on to, uh, to my game of the week here which is a game, uh, it's from a studio called Kepra Publishing. I think I'm pronouncing that right. K-H-E-P-E-R-A. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Atlantis the Second Age. Mm. And uh, it's a, and, and as much as this generally isn't my bag, this looks interesting. It's a very much a sword and sorcery game inspired by like Fritz Lieber, Michael Moorcock, Robert Howard. Mm-hmm. You know, it says it's based on the classic Atlantean trilogy from Bard Games, um, but the artwork, just the 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 cover, is absolutely gorgeous. Oh and, yeah, it is. Yeah, very very period correct too. Like it does look like a um yeah a, a Fritz. Oh, I've forgotten his name. Um, Lieber. Lieber, but also uh um who was that guy? Um, Vallejo. It looks like Vallejo as well. Yeah. Okay. And, and those guys, yeah. But yeah, and, and the way they're describing it, they do have a system to, you know, built into it, but it, you know, again, based on their drive through listing, I haven't read it for myself yet, but they say that, you know, it can easily be adapted to most popular fantasy games you already play. So you could just take the setting out of the book and do what you want with it in your system, or you can use theirs, mm-hmm. which, you know, they're saying um, somewhere here, there was something where they're, dealing a lot with like exotic techno technomantic magical creations and and cool stuff like that so i mean like i said just it, it unless the only artwork in the thing is the cover and i highly doubt that given you know the modern climate and this is a fairly recent book mm-hmm. the artwork alone is just very evocative and and very cool and uh yeah i mean sword and sorcery is, is a neat thing it's just Often not my thing, but this looks like a flavor that I could find really intriguing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
everything if, if people do it well and put a lot of love into it then you can't help but get caught up in their enthusiasm and just be like okay yeah no you're making me want to play play this setting exactly yeah and there's a lot of support stuff out for this too soundtrack all sorts of source books you know it looks like some monster decks you know all kinds of cool stuff yeah yeah oh actually yeah these are the guys who did um hellas which is yes very successful. yeah yeah, and I think they just um, they just recently kickstarted a superhero thing too. I can't remember the name of it. Oh, not God Sent Agenda. Yes, yes, that's it. Yeah, I remember when that came out, maybe twenty years ago, back when I was on RPG Net. Like they think this is a new edition that they've taken to Kickstarter. Yeah, um, yeah, and it, it's um, yeah. I mean, this 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 designer has been in the industry for years and just working really hard at making this these couple of really excellent games beautiful systems and beautiful art and um yeah god's in agenda is is sort of like the eternals kind of superheroes you're 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 these very powerful sort of things that have been around throughout history and stuff which is um yeah actually uh, some of the original edition was some of the ideas that ended up in relics so you all as it goes back to we all sort of inspiring each other yep yep well it's been a wonderful conversation. I'd like to thank you again for taking the time to join us. It's been fascinating to hear, you know, some of your design theory and, and just, you know, even some of your ideas are ones that have been rattling around my head. And it's good to hear that I'm not completely crazy and someone else thinks yep. the same way I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's, that's what some of these chats are so good. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm not the only one. You, <laughs> I'm not crazy. As I said, we almost didn't publish partners because we thought, does anyone want this? And Luckily, they do, yeah. Yeah, well, it, it just feels like, and like you said, the other thing about partners that I think is so neat is you designed it for two people. How mm. many nights you, you're supposed to get together to play and, you know, a couple of your peop people can't make it, and so there's two of you, and so you're like, well, you know, uh, what are we going to do? Yeah. Play Magic the Gathering? Well, no, play partners. Yeah, I hope so. Or I suppose, could you could you make it a, a four-player thing with, like, yeah. two duos pretty easily? We talk about some of those options in the book. There's also basically a list of the sort of smaller characters and there's ways that you can split that up. Um, so yeah, there's, there's all these options to play it with any number of players. Um, and, and two is the sort of the hook to get you in the door, but um, you know, we've run it with three and we've run it with, with four and, and um, I'm, I'm sure people are out there going to run it with just big, big um, numbers. So there's effectively sort of six main characters that you're dealing with. So there's six works, but you can have like one, two people do the main characters and one person do all the minor characters. You can split it up all sorts of different ways. Um, we even talk about the fact that you can just sort of go, you just pick two people each scene. And so the, sh the characters just move around. It's like, right, you're playing the straight shooter this time. You're playing the wild card this time. Or you're playing my boss. And, and so it's, it's the characters are static, but who's playing them changes is another way you can well, like you said, you're playing the story more than the characters. So yeah, yeah, it's a really good way to pass the yeah. story around. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, like I said, you know, thank you again. And uh, if you have something else coming out and you want to come talk to us about it, we'd be more than happy to have you come back if you'd like. Fantastic. Yep. Uh, we'll probably be back in a yeah six months or a year with our next game, which is about heists that we're working on. Aha. Okay, is that after the zombie one or? Uh, that'll be before the zombie one. Yeah. Uh -huh. Which is yeah. That's the okay. one. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Very cool. All right. So, uh, yeah, be sure to check out, you know, Tin Star Games. Like Steve said, all things tinstar.com, Facebook, et cetera. 
Yep. Um, and with that, uh, thank you for listening. Be sure to check us out, you know, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Patreon, all that other stuff, me and Steve RPGs. And, uh, we'd like to remind y'all to be kind to each other and go play some RPGs. Intro and outro music by the band 12 Noon. You can email us at meandsteverpg at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and RPGs. Find us on Facebook at Me and Steve RPG Podcast. On Discord at Me and Steve RPGs. And as always, all of these links are in the show notes. Thank you and be kind to one another. Cigar. Cigar, 20 bucks, dog. You got to go down the street to the store and buy that. All right. That's a wrap. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you very much. This is a very, very fun conversation. Awesome. Thank you for waking up early. (laughs) (laughs) No worries. Um, yeah, and I will, um, yeah, we'll definitely love to be on again.